Hello, this is Mike Burek, your host and producer of Krenitsya, The Well, a podcast series about interesting and noteworthy Ukrainians from around the globe. Today is Friday, April 28th, 2023. This episode is produced for The Ukrainian Weekly, a newspaper published in English in the U.S. for the global Ukrainian community since 1933. Our guest for this episode is Alexander Lindman, who is a retired U.S. Army Lieutenant Colonel and former Director for European Affairs with the U.S. National Security Council, also known as the NSC. Welcome, Alex. How are you? Uh, thanks for having me on. I'm looking forward to the conversation. I am uh, well aware of the contribution that the Ukrainian Weekly has done, has made uh, for the Ukrainian community for nearly 100 years. Thanks so much for joining us today. To start off with, I'd like to get a little bit of information about your educational and professional background. Sure. So um, I I'm, I'm, uh, was in a somewhat unusual career in the military. I spent the first 10 years of my military service as a troop leader, an infantryman, got a chance to do all those kind of cool, exciting things like airborne, ranger, uh, deployed to combat, served in uh, various corners of the world, um, Korea, uh, Germany, a bunch of different bases in the U.S. Uh, I lived and served out of the U.S. Embassy in Ukraine uh, from 2009 to 2010, and then Russia and uh, Moscow from 2012 to 2015. Traveled extensively throughout that region all throughout Ukraine, all throughout the uh, what what used to be part of the of the uh, Russian Empire, and and uh, in addition to, to that kind of experience, uh, uh, I also had a chance to um, develop my academic kind of deep understanding of the region. Uh, my undergraduate was from uh, the State University of New York at Binghamton, and then Cornell, and then from there uh, as a mid career. Army officer. I went to Harvard uh, to work on my regional studies expert uh, knowledge, rather, and then uh, attended the uh, Harvard Ukraine um, or yeah, Harvard Ukraine Research Institute, uh, which I've had the privilege to, to associate with for some time. And then most recently, I just finished up my doctoral studies at Johns Hopkins, uh, and I've got a doctorate in international affairs. Uh, and the focus of that work has been on U.S. policy towards Ukraine and Russia since 1991, uh, the shortfalls, the successes where they were, and frankly, uh, a, a deeper understanding of how we ended up in this in this war. Uh, last thing I'll mention is, uh, in addition to those those uh, postings around the world, I also worked at the uh, Pentagon, and I was the the um, chairman of the Joint Chiefs Political Military Advisor for for Russia, and then uh, on the National Security Council, covering Russia, Ukraine and a whole host of other countries in Eastern Europe. Alex, you were born in Kiev, Ukraine, and came to the U.S. with your family in 1979. Why did your family leave Ukraine, and how difficult was it to make that transition to life in the U.S.? So I was uh, a little guy. Uh, I think we left when I was uh, about three and a half years old. And for me, everything was easy. Was, you know, happy-go-lucky uh, young child with my... Uh, Siblings didn't know what we didn't have, uh, and frankly, a pretty good uh, uh, family life. 
but Frank, from from my father, I I understand the challenges much much more um, as an adult. He he was a, a quite successful Jewish Ukrainian, but nevertheless uh, understood that uh, the Jewish population was increasingly being targeted by the uh, by the Soviets, not simply by the Ukrainians. There's a history of, of uh, relations between the Jew, Jews and, and Ukraine. Sometimes it's been quite difficult. But I want to make sure that, you know, it's, it's not just the way the, the Russians try to make it sound like it was uh, or national groups that were a problem. But it was the Soviets, in fact, that were uh, that were part of the problem targeting the Ukrainian population. And he did not perceive uh, the opportunities for a future for his children. So we left when I was three and a half. We arrived in the United States as refugees. My mother, unfortunately, didn't uh, was didn't come with us. She, she passed away from cancer, uh, and we were raised in in uh, New York City from from that age of about four. Let's turn our attention to the Russian war against Ukraine. Do you think it's in the national security interest of the U.S. to support the war in Ukraine? It is in the critical national security interest uh, of the U.S. to support Ukraine, and the reason is uh, multi. Faceted. First of all, there has nev- not been a uh, threat to a rules-based international order, kind of embodied in the U.S. Security Council. Uh, you know this this notion that we try to avoid large states from going to war against each other and destabilizing the international system and propelling conditions for a another world war. That was the whole reason for establishing the uh, the U- United Nations. And Russia has upset that whole system. Uh, So a Russia that's successful in Ukraine is emboldened to pursue war aims elsewhere using military means to pursue pursue aims, but it doesn't end there. It it extends to other countries that potentially could see a viable path to achieving their political aims uh, with military means that extends to China, that extends to Iran, that extends to any other power that is currently experiencing you know, democratic backsliding, moving towards authoritarianism, and could then perceive a way to build legacies, build uh, power, build empire through militarians. That is a huge consideration. Of course, there's the the base considerations about human rights and the fact that uh, Ukraine is struggling for uh, our the same values that we struggle for uh, in in the U.S. and that struggle from a values-based perspective, is critically important. From the humanitarian perspective, uh, ending the suffering is critically important. From a perspective of European stability, a Russia that's successful in Ukraine doesn't end its its aspirations for territorial gain and directly threatens European stability, you are the United States' most important relationship. So from the strategic to the, the, to the kind of the purely uh, practical, there are many, many different reasons that we should support Ukraine and support Ukraine to the fullest without any artificial constraints on systems, quantities, or anything else. Why do you think there's been such a delay by the EU, NATO, and the U.S. in providing Ukraine with the needed military assistance? Uh, I think part of this is a lack of sufficiently capable leaders in U.S. government to meet the, the test. I think we have good folks, don't get me wrong, but this challenge requires exceptional uh, folks, folks that are well-versed on the, the, the region, 
understand the, the geopolitics, understand who the Russians are, who the Ukrainians are. And that is a scarce resource in the U.S. government. At one point during the Cold War, we had those experts. Uh, they don't exist anymore. And there's a lot of misunderstandings and misconceptions about Russia and about Ukraine. Those played out at the beginning of the war with the expectations that Russia was going to win quickly and Ukraine was going to fold quickly. That wasn't just the Russians' mistake and their deep chauvinism. It was also Western leaders' mistakes about who these two countries were. Uh, so that lack of kind of expertise translates into misconceptions about the risk of escalation. If we arm Ukraine sufficiently, does that lead to a confrontation with Russia? It doesn't. But there are still some some concerns about that. There is a, a lack of understanding about the possibility of Ukraine winning too much, Russia losing too badly, and what that spells for Russian stability with its massive nuclear arsenal. That arrests good policy, good fulsome support to Ukraine, because we don't, you know, the, the policymakers think that Russia could collapse. There could be a lots of loose nuclear weapons or emergence of multiple nuclear states. That's not likely to happen. But that's what that's another fear that plagues the administration. And the last one is, you know, a comfort with the status quo, a comfort with the fact that we've had a relationship with Russia, even though it's it's been very, very difficult. And uh, there's a there's a belief that somehow we could return to a relationship with Russia pre-war, pre-2022. Uh, and that is a mirage. Uh, and I think all that kind of stems from the fact that we just don't have the right people in the right positions to provide the right advice. How do you think Ukraine has performed on the battlefield in the last year? Amazingly. I mean, I, I don't know that the superlatives are, are hard here, but what what's absolutely shocking and continues to shock to this day is how badly the Russians have underperformed and how amazingly the Ukrainians have overperformed expectations. I was not one of those folks that thought that Ukraine was going to uh, was going to buckle and break. I wrote about the fact that Russia was going to conduct its full scale assault uh, on Ukraine back in, in you know, a, a month before I was talking about the war months before that the Russians were almost certainly going to, uh, to strike. Uh, so I have a, a better feel for who the Russians were and who the Ukrainians were. I didn't expect the Russians to, to be able to dominate or the Ukrainians to um, to fold. But that mismatch, the amazing fortitude of the Ukrainian people to hold and then liberate when opportunities present themselves. And we're going to see some more of that play out over the coming months. I'm cautiously optimistic that the Ukrainians are going to have the same kinds of successes they had around Kharkiv and uh, Kherson. You know, those those kind of unexpected surprises are going to play out over the course of, of Ukraine's counteroffensive in the coming months. So even though I feel like I have a good pulse on on these two armies, it's still pretty amazing to, to watch the, the Ukrainians run circles around the Russians and do perform so well on the battlefield. And the Ukrainian people to be so resilient. Uh, that's that's also absolutely essential. What impact do you think the leaked U.S. intelligence classified documents will have on the war in Ukraine? None. No real impact. I think um, the problem, the, it's, it, the bigger impact is on uh, kind of on the willingness of Ukraine or U.S. allies to share intelligence with the U.S. That might be impacted. They might be a little more cautious than the Ukrainians. I think it's a kind of uh, black eye for the Defense Department and the security uh, establishment in the U.S. 
that, you know, we have secrets kind of spill out like that. But in terms of, you know, what the Russians can glean that could help them, uh, you know, with, uh, with, uh, withstand the coming Ukrainian onslaught, I don't think it's going to be that meaningful. Should Ukraine's allies try to convince President Zelensky to move towards peace talks with Vladimir Putin? I think we've done what we should in terms of encouraging the Ukrainians to be open-minded, but we should not let that translate over into compelling the Ukrainians to negotiate because that's a fool's errand. It's not a lack of willingness by uh, President Zelensky or the Ukrainians to negotiate that's an impediment to ending this war. It's Russia's willingness to engage in earnest, meaningful negotiations. Russia is not ready to do that until it suffers a series of additional defeats, which they're going to start to experience later in the spring, summer, and into the fall. Will they then believe that they they need to kind of retain what they have and engage in, in negotiations? So again, to underscore that it's going to be Ukraine's success on the battlefield that forces Putin to negotiate. That's the most important factor here, not anything that the Ukrainians are are doing or failing to do with regards to helping end this war. Alex, do you believe the U.S. support for Ukraine in the Russian war is weakening? And what do you think might happen if the war continues into 2024 and beyond? I don't actually I don't think it's weakening so far. uh, It's strengthening. (laughs) My criticism of the U.S. government is that it's strengthening too slowly and still subject to artificial guardrails and constraints. We've definitely provided more resources. I told the administration that they were going to get there. They were going to provide these systems, but I urged them to to do it sooner when it would be more meaningful and more impactful. We may very well get to planes and, and, you know, large-scale drones and more long-range artillery. The problem is that we missed an opportunity to do it sooner. So I'm, I've seen uh, the exact opposite that, you know, we, we keep increasing support, but not at the pace that it needs to be. And I urge the U.S. government to do more to secure ourselves, to make sure that this is in the long war. Now, there may very well be a tipping point. I think as we get into um, the, the fall of this year, there's going to be debate about a future appropriation, additional billions of dollars going to Ukraine, money well spent, a dollar spent in Ukraine is like worth $50 in terms of normal defense defense spending. In terms of what it's done to neutralize Russia as a, as a threat, conventional threat, and what it's done to deter Chinese aggression, it's a dollar very, very well spent. But there are some, some concerns that we might not be able to stick with it through the fall. I feel like we actually will. My biggest concerns are actually about this time next year. As we get into 2024 and U.S. domestic politics you know, Trump all other considerations. Do we have the 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 will, and frankly the the latitude to continue to support Ukraine, you know, through the rest of 2024, if the war is still raging at the same level it is now? We're just about out of time, but I did want to ask you one last question. You mentioned sending planes to Ukraine to help in the war. And so far, there seems to be a reluctance on the part of the U.S. and all the allies to send F-16s. Why do you think that's so? And what would change that situation? So there's, I think, that's mainly, unfortunately, still a political consideration. The the president and the national security establishment said that it was off the table. And, you know, they said that that would be a, a driver for escalation. It's kind of a black eye for the administration that, you know, they read the, the tea leaves so poorly 
already we obviously see Soviet era MiGs being transferred from uh, Slovakia and from uh, Poland. Obviously, no risk of escalation kind of emerging from there. And it would be kind of a black eye for the administration to get it wrong that we should have, you know, kept saying that this is going to be this. This is a, a red line. This could be a problem. And when we do it, the Biden administration is going to take a hit from not doing it sooner. So I think it's it's silly base calculations about you know political optics rather than national security that's driving it. I think there may be a little bit of a reluctance associated with. The, re- or the risk of escalation, but I think it's actually less the escalation at this point, more just domestic politics, which is which is a shame that we should be ashamed that that's what's driving our national security policy around Ukraine. What might tip that over and what might ultimately force the U.S. to or European capitals to open up to providing these advanced aircraft? It could be a disastrous summer campaign in which it becomes evident that the the Russians, because of their air force, were able to defeat the Russian other Ukrainian counter counteroffensive. That might be a driver. It could be a new series of Russian atrocities, but it's going to be something. This is another problem. It's going to be something a, a reaction to something that's going on, not the perception that we could be offering these capabilities to help Ukraine win, but a reaction that could drive the U.S. to lift its restra- uh, constraints on on aircraft, which is a a problem that our policy almost from beginning to end has been kind of reactive in support of Ukraine. Alex, thank you so much for joining us on Krenitsia today. Thank you for having me on. I look forward to the next conversation. I have been speaking with Alexander Vindman, retired U.S. Army Lieutenant Colonel and former Director for European Affairs with the U.S. National Security Council, NSC. And this is Mike Burek, your host and producer of Krenitsia the Well, a podcast series about interesting and noteworthy Ukrainians from around the globe. This episode is produced for the Ukrainian Weekly, a newspaper published in English in the U.S. for the global Ukrainian community since 1933. Until next time, that's all for now.